Good morning, Fairhaven Church. If you're a guest and we haven't met, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Great to have you here. We're so glad that you're here. I want to welcome our Springboro campus to the south, North Mount, way up to the north, Beaver Creek to the east, Classics that's joining us, and all of you that are right here in Centerville. It's great to have you here. I hope you have a great weekend, and I hope uh, tomorrow you get some time off with friends and or family. Uh, just a great time to just celebrate the warm weather and so forth. We are in a series. Uh, this is week two of a series called More Than Money, because the truth of the matter is, even though we're talking about money, we want to think way beyond that because God has so much for us way beyond money and so that's why we're calling it more than money as we think this through. I want to start off today by saying this that if you noticed that we are satisfied with what we have until something you know we discover something we don't have. Have you noticed that? That you're completely satisfied, I'm completely satisfied with what we have until we discover something that we don't have. And this is true even in the animal kingdom. There was a researcher that wanted to test this principle out with animals, actually. And so he did that. And I want to show you. Here's a picture here of the research. And I want to show you the video, actually. There's two monkeys, capuchin monkeys. And they put them together in community. So they knew each other. Um, they were in community. They hung out together all day long. And so they tried this experiment where the monkeys had to give this researcher here a, a, a stone. And then then the researcher here would give them some cucumbers. And so they did this back and forth. Both monkeys gave each other a stone, and then they got a cucumber. And they did it 25 times in a row. And then they changed it on one of the monkeys. On this monkey here on the right, you'll notice in the video that the monkey gave the stone to the researcher. And the researcher didn't give a cucumber, but gave a grape. And this monkey over here noticed it. Because the principle is true, even in the, you know, even in the animal kingdom, that we're satisfied with what we have until we discover that we had, don't have something in our lives. And so I want you to listen to the researcher as the researcher describes this. It's pretty funny, actually. Watch this. I'm getting grape, and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us. That's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber, and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now. Gets again cucumber. <laughs> she tests a rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. Yeah, it's pretty... Pretty sad, isn't it? Because uh, the truth of the matter is kind of our, our attitude when things happen like that, right? The principle is true. We're pretty satisfied with what we have until we discover that we don't have something. Would you be surprised to find out that in any given day, you receive between 4,000 and 10,000 ads per day? that comes through your email, through your social media, through the television, through billboards, through the radio, through all kinds, and they just tell you that you constantly ought to be thinking about stuff that you should have in your life because they know the principle the ads do, uh, the advertisers know, the principle that you and I know, and that is that we're satisfied with what we have until we discover we don't have something in our lives. 4,000 to 10,000, that is one every 15 seconds. 
It's incredible. It comes at us uh, so much. It's no wonder that we struggle with this idea of uh, money in our lives and the idea of being happy and so forth and so on. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever gone to a store and you've shopped for something and you thought, no, I'm going to think about it. I need to check some other places and, and uh, I want to check some other prices. And you go home and two hours later, somehow in your email or on your Facebook or social media, there's a thread that actually shows you the very thing that you were looking at and how you can buy it. Anybody ever see that? I mean, it's frightening, isn't it, what they know about you and what they know about me as we think about this. Here's a question. How much, how much would make you happy in your life? If I asked you that question, how much would make you happy? And let me tell you what Rockefeller, one of the most wealthiest men that ever walked the planet, probably, um, he answered this way, um, just a little more, we would all say, right? I mean, we'd ask the question, it's just a little bit more in our life. What I want to talk with you about today, as we look into the New Testament, is I want to talk to you about the monster of more. Paul, actually, in the New Testament, is going to tell us and teach us how you and I can slay this monster of more. Because it's something I think all of us face, whether you're 13 or whether you're 83, we all face this idea that we're pretty satisfied with what we have until we discover something that we don't have in our lives, and we face this monster of more on a regular basis. And by the way, it's coming at you at a pace that's so difficult with thousands and thousands of advertisements that are headed your way every single minute, every single second of your life. And so you and I need to think this through in our life as we figure out what it means for us to slay the monster of more. Let me start out by telling you a couple of lies that this monster tells us. We never say it out loud, but we sort of say it to ourselves when we think about looking at our own lives and looking at the stuff that we have in our lives. Here's lie number one when it comes to the lie of more. I should have more. It's not fair. It's easy to look at your life and compare it to somebody else and to say, it's not fair. Why can't I have what they have? Why, why do I have to deal with less than they have? And of course, there's always somebody that could do that to you. Am I right? Somebody could look at your life and say, boy, I wish I had what they had. And so it's this sense of envy in comparison that we deal with. Here's the second lie, the lie that says, I deserve more, where we actually believe the fact that there is this monster out there that we believe we deserve more. And so the monster of more comes into our lives and we begin to have greed and, and you know, that attitude in our life is really just poisoning to our soul. And I want you to see today that Paul has the answer. He tells us how to slay this in our life, how you and I can get rid of this in our life. It's pretty incredible. And then here's a third lie. There's probably many more, but here's the third lie that we tell ourselves, and that's this. God promises more. That somehow somebody probably told you that, well, you know, God promises more to you in life. And so we deal with this entitlement, spiritual entitlement in, in our lives. And so I want you to pay very close attention because I want to show you a verse. But before I show you the verse, I want to make sure that you, we understand this principle. Because so many of us have believed this idea that God promises more. Would you know that God doesn't promise more? He doesn't promise more. Here's what he promises. He promises rewards for good stewardship. The question is, what is the reward? Paul's going to describe that reward because it's far better than more. See, God doesn't promise us more. He promises that you will be rewarded when you live out good stewardship in your life, not just with your money, but your relationships and all the things that God has given you, the stuff that you have. When you live with good stewardship with all of that, there is a reward for you, and Paul describes that. And if you and I gather what this reward is and understand it and begin to live it out, 
it'll change our lives. Literally could change our lives. And perhaps this is the perfect time as we're thinking about moving beyond money, more than money in our lives. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 16. He said, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Matter of fact, if you're looking for a place to study this week, or if you're a small group beyond what we're going to look at in the New Testament today, you may want to take a look at Luke chapter 16, because Jesus says an awful lot. I mean, these are the words of Jesus himself, and he's trying to help us and warn us about the fact that there's this monster of more, and God doesn't promise us more. He promises rewards to you and I if we live out good biblical stewardship. So let's take a look because Paul describes what that reward is. Grab your Bibles or your devices and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians is in the New Testament. It's a small book. In fact, there's only four chapters. It's at the very end of this letter that Paul is describing the monster of more because he's talking to them about a variety of other issues. And in the context of all those issues, he describes how you and I can slay the monster of more. So here's what he's going to do. Paul's going to say, you can slay the monster of more with this reward. Anybody interested in knowing what that reward is? Let's take a look at it, and let's see if we can figure this out together, and let's put that right here, and we can jot this down. In fact, it's only one word. Grab this one word with you as you leave today and all of our campuses online, wherever you might be with us. Um, We all want this understanding of what it means to slay this monster of more in our lives. Philippians chapter 4, as we're reading it, let me set it up for you. Okay, we're going to start in verse 10. Paul started this church, the church in Philippi, along with a couple people, a couple ladies actually, and they started this church, and the church was amazing. The fact of the matter is the church is a lot like Fairhaven. They were a generous church. Fairhaven, you are a generous church. That's why we give away over a million dollars a year beyond our walls into the community and into the world around. If you're new, you need to know that, that we care deeply about our world. We care deeply about our city. And because of your generosity, we just give it away. We want to help people. We want to help churches. Um, we've actually paid for the health insurance for a pastor who has been struggling for 25 years. We paid his because of your generosity. It's amazing. And so here, uh, Paul has started this church, and they're a generous church. Paul is now in prison. And he's in prison, and I want you to know that he's in house arrest. And house arrest is not like he's in a really nice house, and it's got three bathrooms. And I mean, this is like he's chained to a wall. And being in house arrest, there's no three square meals a day. I mean, people have to bring food in. If people don't bring food in, you know what? Paul doesn't eat that meal. And so he's in a pretty tough situation, and while he writes this, I want you to keep that in mind, that Paul is in prison, he's really struggling in his life, and he writes these words, which gives us the secret or the reward to what slaying the monster looks like. And so I want us to take away that as we read this together. Start in verse 10. Here's what he says, Paul saying this, I rejoiced in the Lord. If you like to write in your Bibles, you may want to put the word joy. Because joy is at stake here, church. The monster of more will rob you, rob me of joy in our life. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. In other words, I'm in, you know, I'm in jail and you're there in Philippi and some of you are helping me while I'm in prison. That's what he's saying there. You were indeed concerned for me, But you had no opportunity. It's a little bit harder because he's in jail. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. It's not that I'm saying this to you because I want you to give me something. 
For I have learned in whatever situation, you might want to underline that word, whatever situation, whatever situation, whatever situation, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's the word, church. Circle it, highlight it, because if you and I are going to slay the monster of more, it happens with contentment. That's the word of the day. If you and I understand what contentment is, because Paul's going to describe it for us, because he does talk about the monster of more. He's talking to them about taking care of him and the generosity and a bunch of different things, but he describes what contentment is. And I want us to leave here today, especially around the area of our money, to discover what contentment is because contentment can slay the monster of more. Anybody interested in that? I know I am as I've been studying this and taking a look at it. Let's look at it again, verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In other words, I know when, when, you, know, when you have little, I, I get that, Paul says. I know what it means to have a lot. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. I mean, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, meaning he was a big deal, and he had lots of money at one point in his life. And so he says, I know what it means to have a little. I know what it means to have a lot. And he says, in any way, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret. What is the secret? We're going to learn that today. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he gives us verse 13, which I'm going to look at with you in just a second. Because my guess is you probably have already heard uh, this verse before. Here's what Paul says. It's kind of startling. He says, you can be in any and every situation. You ready for this? And yet you can experience contentment. Really? Because that's not our experience. Our experience is not in any situation that you can have contentment. And that's what Paul is actually submitting to you and to me. You can be in any situation financially. Uh, you can be in any situation. And yet you can still experience contentment in your life. And we're going to try to discover what that is. It might be um, good for us to start with the definition of what contentment is. Let me give you a definition of contentment, and let's talk about that for just a second. See, contentment is when you are at rest in your heart. When your heart is at rest, when your blood pressure lowers, when you feel a sense of God is in control, when you know I can trust him, when you're at the place in your life where you recognize, you know what, I know he has this. I know God's got this. Contentment is when your heart is at rest. The flip side is also true. A lack of biblical stewardship creates restlessness. See, when you're at odds with your finances, when you're at odds with the monster of more, you know what that does? It creates restlessness in our lives, and we can't find contentment. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read on and see what Paul has to tell us because he's going to give us three aspects of contentment that you and I need to understand today. It's not something you probably don't already know. We just need to remind ourselves, revive it in our life, and slay the monster more because if it's coming at you at 4,000 to 10,000 ads a day, and if you experience it like monkeys experience it, then you and I face it every single day, and we need to constantly slay it and be reminded of the fact that contentment can slay this monster of more in our lives. Take a look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Now, this is what's really interesting. I want you to raise your hand in all of our campuses, and even online, you can kind of put your thumb up if you want. How many of you have ever heard that verse before, all right? Just raise your hand if you've heard that, and then look around, okay? Just look around. I'm looking here at the Centerville campus, and I'm looking around almost every single person I'm looking at today. I mean, it's like 100%. Wow, it's incredible. So many of you know that verse. And I bet it's the same thing at Springboro, Northmont, Beaver Creek, Classics, and those of you that are online. Here's what's interesting. So many people have quoted that. It's on a mug. It's on a plaque that hangs in our homes. And it's been completely ripped out of context to where it doesn't even mean what most people think it means. See, it doesn't mean that if you're a musician and you want to win a Grammy, that you can just quote, I can do all things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you want to be a baseball player and you want to win the World Series, See, it's not good enough for you to say, you know what, I'm going to play baseball and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and I'm going to win the World Series. That's not what this is about. Here's what this verse means because many of us have heard this and a lot of people have quoted it. In fact, if you watch games, you'll see it. Sometimes in football, you'll see it on people's, you know, right here where they have it in black. They'll have Phil 413. It's right here. We have to make sure that we understand what's going on here. Here's what Paul is saying, that I can do all things through Christ because he will provide contentment for me. In other words, it's in the context of understanding contentment that there's this outside source that can come into our lives through the Holy Spirit, and by the Holy Spirit in our lives can bring to us contentment, and God will do that. I can do all things. I can experience contentment no matter what the circumstances are because of who God is in my life. That's the context of this verse. That's exactly what Paul is saying here that you and I can slay the monster of more through the idea of contentment, and God will provide that. It's his strength. It's not because you can drum it up or because you have to do some things in your life. The truth of the matter is, if you don't live out his plan for your finances, God's plan that is, well, you're not going to feel at rest. And so what he's saying here is, as you think about your life and you think about how to create contentment in your life, follow God's plan, follow God's word, and you're going to experience the contentment from the inside out into your life. So Paul gives us three things that we should be thinking about as we're talking about contentment here. And so let me lay this out to you, three aspects of contentment that I think are really, really important for us to understand, particularly when it comes to our money. Here's number one, if you want to jot it down, contentment is trusting in Jesus, Pause. And breaking trust in money. I hope you see right away that you can't trust in Jesus and trust in your money. Help me out here, church. Don't raise your hand. How many of you know that it's possible to place your trust in money? Is that possible? Yeah. And so Paul is trying to help us here to understand that contentment comes when we trust in Jesus, which means that we have to break trust with money. Let's take a look at it again. Start in verse 10. Here's what he says. I rejoice, or I have joy in my life because of God, and now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How did he learn that? He learned that because he placed his trust in Jesus. His trust was not in, you know, the food that might come every single day. His trust was not in the provisions. His trust was not when he had a lot, when he had a little. 
Jesus actually picks up on this, and that's exactly why we mentioned this verse right here, or this principle right here, as Paul lays it out. Jesus says this in Luke, in Luke chapter 13, which John Piper picks up. Let me read Luke for you first. In Luke chapter 16, here's what Jesus says. No servant can serve two masters. Have you ever heard that before? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The actual Greek word is mammon, which means stuff, including money. You can't trust in God and trust in your stuff. John Piper picks up on it, and I love this statement that he makes in a book called Future Grace. He says, you can't trust in God and in money at the same time. Belief in one is the unbelief in the other. And so we place our trust in Jesus and we break our trust in money. The question might be, how do you break trust with money? Would you allow me to give you five practical ideas of how you can break trust with money? Because in this series, as we're thinking about moving beyond money, more than money, I want to know, and maybe you do as well, how do we break trust with money so that we can place all of our trust in Jesus? Well, let me give you five suggestions. Here's suggestion number one. you got to spend less than you earn. See, if you're 13 years of age here today in any one of our campuses, man, if you get this, you're going to be way ahead of many of us. We want to encourage you to think this through. Spend less than you earn. Solomon, who we looked at uh, Proverbs last week where you know, Solomon wrote it, he wrote this in Ecclesiastes. He said, he who loves money will not be satisfied. Why? Because of the monster of more. I mean, how much more do you need? Just a little bit. And so he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or it's meaningless. What Solomon is saying here is, look, throughout my life I've learned it's not an income problem. It's a spending problem. You agree with that, church? It's not an income problem. Now, I recognize that if you lose your job, that maybe your income's, you know, not there for right now. God's got this. If you're here today and any one of our campuses and that's true for you, God's got this. He's got a plan for you. Trust him in it. It might be a little difficult. Trust him in it. You've got a church family around you that wants to pray and walk with you in this situation, in this season. It's a tough season. But the truth of the matter is, what Solomon is saying here is, it's not an income problem. It's a spending problem. And we've got to make sure that we don't fall in love with money and spend it that way. And so what we learn here is one of the ways to break trust is to spend less than you earn. Here's a second way you can break trust. Reduce your living to 80%. Let me show you what that means. Reducing your income to 80% means that you follow a 10-10-80. Now you may have heard this before or you may have never heard this before. This is something that Kathy and I ran into decades ago when we started our marriage together. We thought, what's our money going to look like and how are we going to handle our money and what do we want to do and all of it. And, and so we ran into a guy named Ron Blue. Now, I'm kind of dating myself here, so I'm just telling you. If you know about Ron Blue, Ron Blue was the Dave Ramsey before Dave Ramsey. 
And so Ron Blue talks about the same things, that, some of the same things that, that Dave Ramsey talks about, and a lot of the financial experts will tell you. And, and this is what, as a believer in Jesus Christ, because you're a follower and because you're a son or a daughter of the king, God wants us to be okay with our finances and to experience contentment. And he says, try this. You ought to give God 10%, you ought to save 10%, and you ought to live at 80%. And Kathy and I rented this decades ago, and we've been living this way and trying to live this way um, the rest of our lives. And it's, I'm telling you, it works. It's amazing when you think about it. Because if you give God and you give yourself and you live on this, it's one of the ways that you can break trust with money. And so one of the ways that you and I can break trust with money is that we can reduce our living to 80%. Here's the third thing. You can avoid the use of debt, especially unsecured debt. And if you don't know what that is, write it down, Google it, I'm sure you do, but consumer debt, that'll kill you. You're on the wrong side of interest. And so, you know, avoid using any of those kinds of debt because that debt will kill you. It's really interesting that when you think of debt and we think of our money, uh, many of us want a financial miracle in our lives at some point or another. Here's the problem. Everyone wants a financial miracle. You just don't want to be in a position to actually need one, right, church? You don't want to be in that position, and so it takes biblical stewardship in our life to be able to break trust with money, um, because if you break trust with money, it gives you the opportunity to put your trust in Jesus on a regular basis in your life. So that's number three. Here's number four. Build margin in your life, or save, maybe another way of saying it. Build margin into our lives, because if we have no margin, then there's nothing we can do beyond the every single day. 61% church, and I'll show you this in a little bit, 61% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And their blood pressure is high, and they probably don't live with any kind of contentment because contentment is a sense where your heart is at rest. There's no judgment, no, no sense of guilt to anybody. That's why we're doing this series, to try to help us to get on the right side and to work. Kathy and I are thinking and looking at things in our own finances that we want to change because of going through this and studying this and thinking this through. We want contentment in our lives as well. Solomon, talking to his son, which we looked at last week in Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon says to his son, this is really interesting, he said, son, you've got to learn how to build margin in your life. You've got to learn how to save some money, and so here's what I want you to do. Um, go to the ant, okay? Go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. See, the ants, they work really, really hard in the summer and get all their... Have you ever seen an ant colony and the things that they can carry? They, I don't know, they can carry some ungodly amount of weight compared to their body weight. And they store it up because when the winter comes, they're ready to go. And so Solomon says, watch the ant. I mean, they do an incredible job. Can I give you three practical ideas of how you and I can deal with this in our own life? Actually, these come from Dave Ramsey, and I think they're really, really good, actually. So let me just give you three practical things when it comes to our money. First of all, make a category for everything. See, if you don't have a category, you don't know where that money's going because there's no category. And all of a sudden, you don't recognize the categories of where you're spending your money. And so the first thing we need to do is probably make a category for every aspect of our finances and every aspect of our, fine, of our money. Secondly, um, put a $1,000 emergency fund together. 
where you can put at least some money aside where there's an emergency fund there in case something happens um, in your life. For example, something like a, a water heater could go out in your life. And if you've got an emergency fund, you certainly can do that. As I said, Kathy and I have been living with a 10, 10, 80, and our water heater went out this week. And I don't know if you've called a plumber lately on a water heater. It's expensive. And I'm so grateful that we had it in the margin so that when he came, we were able to give it to him without having to borrow money. And that's not because we're really great. It's because we're working at this. It's hard. We got to work it out And because we need an emergency fund. We all need one in our lives. And thirdly, um, cut consumption. Dave Ramsey, as I was doing some research, it's amazing that Dave Ramsey said this. He said, do you realize that if you stop going out to eat for an entire year, now that may be hard, but let's just say you pack lunches, you know, for, for work and school or whatever it might be. You just cut out going out to eat for an entire year. You can save about $200 a month. What? He also says, if you can't cut out going out to eat, he says, that's fine. Go out to eat, but just order water. <laughs> Don't order a drink, don't order soft drinks, and for a year, if you just go out to eat and order water, in an entire year, Dave Ramsey says, you can save $1,000. Really? Coke cost $1,000 over a course of a year? That's incredible if you think about it. And it's amazing because sometimes we don't have categories for this stuff, and so it just kind of goes. And so cut consumption. There's many, many different ways that we can cut consumption. Here's another way that we can break trust with money. Number five, set long-term goals, where you can set up long-term goals um, in your life. This is how, you see, Paul is saying to us that contentment comes by trusting in Jesus And when we do that, that means that we break trust with money. We're not going to put our trust in money. All right, you get to participate. Everybody gets to participate. Between 1 and 10, where do you think America is as a nation, along with all the other nations of the world, in terms of saving? Are we the number one saving nation in the world, or are we 10? Anywhere between 1 and 10, I want you to vote for a second. I want you to turn to the person next to you and give them the number that you think. According to all the nations of the world, right? If you think of all the nations of the world, are we number one as the number one saving nation in the world, or are we number 10? All right, turn to the person next to you and see if you can give them a number. Or you can just scream a number out if you want. doesn't matter, right? Some of you are thinking this through. Some of you are looking puzzled. Springboro, how you doing down there? Northmont, Beaver Creek, Classics. Those of you that are online, you can just write your number down there if you want. All right, raise your hand if you said it was one, two, or three. Let me just see your hands. Anybody raise them? Okay, we got one per two people think that we're number one in the world. Okay, two people at Centerville. All right, how about three, four, and five? One of those three right there. Anybody want to think we're three, four, and five? Okay, we got like four people that said three, four, or five here at Centerville. Uh, I don't know what the other campuses are. How about five, six, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight? How about six, seven, and eight? Let me just see your hands. Okay, we got a few more, probably 30 or so here at the Centerville. How many of you say 10? Anybody want to say 10? Okay, more of you said 10, that we're number 10. It was a trick question. We're not even in the top 10. (laughs) You want to know what we are? Let me show you. We're number 12. The United States ranks 12th in the world. And we're the wealthiest, probably, nation in the world. Ranks 12th in the percentage of household income saved. That's incredible, actually. 
We've got some work to do. Here's some interesting statistics that I think we need to think about. 61% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 87% of Americans have less than 10,000 in savings. 57% have less than 1,000 in savings. 33% have less than 100 in savings. Don't look down your row. Three out of 10 of us don't even have $100. No guilt, no shame. Because you know, if you and I think this through and we desire to experience biblical stewardship and we work at it, and you can, we all can, you know what the reward for that is? You got it, contentment. Contentment. Because here's the thing. It's important for us to understand that if it doesn't appear that God is providing for you, could it be the problem is bad stewardship? Could it be that you're not following his plan? And when you follow his plan, you experience the contentment of God because it comes from the inside. It's his plan, not our plan, not your plan. It's his plan. That's the first thing that Paul tells us. Here's the second thing about contentment, and that's this. Contentment is being thankful for what you already have. Let's take a look. Verse 12, being thankful for what you already have. So he says this in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. He's probably in the lowest spot in his life. He's in prison. He thinks he's going to die. This is like the last letter. This is it. I'm, I'm out. Mic drop, right? And so he says, I know what, how to be brought low, and I know how to be abound. In other words, I remember when I had a lot. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. What's the secret, Paul? I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's gratitude. See, Paul understands that contentment is being thankful for what you already have. He, he repeats that, actually, to the Thessalonians. He says this to the Thessalonian church. He said, give thanks in all circumstances. I want to challenge you to that today. You may have come in here today, and you may be in the worst spot of your life. Not just financially. It might be some other areas of your life. And i got to tell you that when you put your trust in Jesus, and you break trust with a couple of other things, you can experience great contentment, which causes thankfulness in our lives. What would it be like if today... If whatever campus you're at, if you got up today when we finish and you looked around and you just saw 20 or 30 people and you just kind of looked around and you said, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Those 20 people, because we're a church family, we love you. We care about you. We really do. We care about your life. We care about your family. We care about uh, your relationships and we care about your finances. That's a good thing. You could just say, God, thank you for these people that care about you. And you may not even know them. What would it be like if you went out in the hallway in all of our campuses and you went and picked up your kids and they're probably going to be loud and they're excited or maybe they need a nap and, and you could just simply say to yourself, thank you, Lord. Or you could leave here today and any one of our campuses are online and you don't have any kids. You could say, thank you, Lord. Because <laughs> you might be at that season of your life, right? What would it be like if you went out to the parking lot and you walked up to your car and you touched the doorknob on your car and you just simply said, thank you, Lord. I get a ride home today. It doesn't matter that your car is different or worse or better than the people next to you or in the next aisle. Thank you, Lord. What if you went home and to your apartment, your condo, your house, and you touched the doorknob to go in from the garage or from the front door and you just said, thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
What would it be like if you went to sleep tonight and you got up in the morning and let's say you're married and you rolled over in the morning and you saw him, you saw her and you just, thank you, Lord. What would it be like if you got to work and you started walking through the parking lot and you're headed to work and you walk in the door and you open the door to the office and you say, thank you, Lord. What if you sat down at your office and you sometime were taking a phone call and the, the first phone call you make and you set the phone down or you set your cell phone down and you said, thank you, Lord. See, Paul, I think, knows something. I mean, after all, he's in prison. And he shares it several times. He talks about how we should be thankful and give thanks in all circumstances. There's something powerful about contentment because it's arrested our, our soul, our heart. Thankfulness is really, really important. Because here's what we know. You see, money is a terrible boss. It's a terrible boss. And so what we need to do is we need to make it our employee. In other words, we need to tell our money how it needs to work. Are you with me, church? Okay. Kathy and I tried this, you know, decades ago, actually, and I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that we still do it today. We have envelopes that Kathy and I use. We go to the bank every single two weeks, and we take out a certain number of ones and a number of $5 bills, a number of $20 bills, and we put them in different envelopes, and the envelopes are there. And when the envelopes are empty, we're done. In fact, we sometimes play a game. You can steal money from an envelope and put it in another envelope. But when your envelope's empty, you're done. And in, in fact, when we had four boys in the house, and this envelope, the grocery envelope, was pretty thick, actually, with four boys. I mean, we'd play a game, and I'd say, Kathy, if you can, if you can see if you can figure out how to spend a little bit less in this envelope, we'll go out to eat. Like Wendy's, you know, or something like that, you know. <laughs> Big deal, right? And so... It's amazing how that happens in our life. We understand that. Well, Paul goes on. He gives us one more thing, and it's this. The contentment is found in developing a heart of generosity. Take a look at it with me. Verse 14, he says this. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. They were generous with him. And you Philippians know that you, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He's affirming the, Thessalon the uh, Philippians because of a generous church. Fairhaven, would you let me affirm you? I want to affirm you of being a generous church. We want to do so much in our community. We want to do so much in our world. I don't know if you know or not, we give over a million dollars away every year. We just give it away. We help pastors, we do different things. And so he says in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and once again. Not that I seek the gift, not that I'm asking you to give more, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, I want you to see that your generosity is making a difference. I am well and supplied in having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, contentment is found in developing a heart of generosity. And Paul is laying that out as he writes this letter. Jesus said these words in Acts chapter 20. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said to himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you realize that there's two audiences that don't believe that? Let me give them to you. There's two kinds of people that don't believe that that's true. Number one, it's the person that has never tried it. See, if you've never tried being generous, you don't believe that this is true. 
I mean, you just think it's some appeal from Jesus or maybe the church to try to gain some more money. That's not true. It's about contentment. And so one of the audiences that don't believe that this is true are people who don't live a life of generosity because they've never tried it. Here's the second group of people that don't believe it. People who can't. People who can't. You see, if you and I are living above our means and we have a lot of debt and we're not saving money, it's impossible, isn't it, to be a person of generosity. It's not that you don't want to, you just can't. And when you can't, you're not sure that this is even true. And that's why this is such a challenge for you and I. See, the monster of more, when we talk about the monster of more, I want you to, sh- I want you to see how we slay the monster of more. See, the monster of more comes when we recognize that the biblical pattern is we give 10, we save 10, we live uh, 80%. But see, the problem is when you and I go from zero giving, zero saving, and we live at 100%, I would call that an unwise budget. Okay, let me just call that an unwise budget. Take a screenshot of this if you want. But then, then if you do this, if you give zero and you save 10 and you live on 90, here's what I would call that, a selfish budget. It's still all about you. It's still about the fact that you want to be the owner and operator of your life. That's an unselfish budget budget and then you got this one here which is really interesting you got you give 10 you save zero and you live on 90 here's what I would tell you this is a dysfunctional budget because if you're not saving and you're giving and you run into financial problem you know who you blame God because you're giving this is a dysfunctional budget see I think if you look through scripture you'll see that we should be giving we should be saving and we should be living because the monster amour is slayed in our life by contentment. That's what destroys that. And contentment is made up of three things. Breaking trust in money, because we trust Jesus. Thankfulness in our lives. And generosity. You see, when we, when we focus on God's financial priorities, we will find contentment. And we will ensure a heavenly reward. That's good news right there. That's news that you and I can go home to as we think about our lives. As we go into communion, would you just bow with me for a second? And as we bow, we've gone a little bit longer here today, and that's my fault. There's so much we could say. But aren't you glad to know that God desires you to be content? That's why he gives us a plan. Let's work the plan. Father, we pray that you would help us today. We thank you, Lord, for Paul who with great credibility, can say, there's a day I had a lot, there's some days I don't have as much, and whatever the circumstances, I can be content. Father, thank you that he teaches us the secret of that today, by trusting in you, by being thankful, and by being generous. So Father, today as we come to communion, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand that placing our trust in Jesus is the beginning of everything. So Lord, help us today as we take this communion and all of our campuses that we might celebrate what that is in our lives and what that means for us as a church family. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.